1: Hello, this is Bernardo Batislaso for the New Books Network. As our guest today, we have Amy Edwards, who is a senior lecturer in, the, in social and cultural history of the 20th and 21st century at the University of Bristol. Amy, is uh, her research focuses on the col- cultures of capitalism, investment and enterprise, uh, their interactions and, with civil society and the political economy and their impact on everyday life. Uh, She's especially interested in interrogating the blurred boundaries boundaries between economic, political, social, and cultural life in contemporary societies. And today, we're talking about her uh, new book, Are We Rich Yet?, published in 2022 by University of California Press. Amy, thank you very, very much for being with us at New Books Network.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me and um, for having me to talk about my book. I really appreciate it.
1: Right. As it's um, customary at the MBN, Amy, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background, how you became a historian and how you became interested in these topics?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I guess this is one of those where it depends how far back you want me to go. Um, I can certainly remember going on family holidays and my parents taking me around old castles and uh, monasteries and things. And, um, my parents like to remind me, especially when I was younger, um, we went on a couple, uh, we went to a couple of monasteries, I think on a holiday in France. And there was something about the atmosphere of it and the kind of history, I think of it that, uh, at the end I came out and informed them that I wanted to be a monk. And I don't think that that was necessarily, um, uh, a kind of deep religious commitment at that age but instead it was something about being in those kind of very kind of historic sites so I mean really as long as I can remember I've loved history um, as a kid at school uh, I love doing history projects um, so there's not like a particular moment where I can remember kind of really appreciating that what I what I loved was history I just really like stories as well and I've always been um, an avid reader and of storytelling so I think it's somewhere in that where um something about history and the stories that you get from history uh, uh, have always kind of stuck with me from a very young age um there was a moment when I was at school and we were having to choose uh what subjects that we wanted to do and um, it was a real toss up for a long time between PE and, um, PE and history, and I very nearly did uh, PE at school for my GCSEs and would have been on a completely different track, but something like the, the day of the deadline where we had to hand in this form, um, I remember kind of running back in and asking if I could change it and change back over to history because I thought that that's actually what I wanted to do in the end. So uh, yeah, I was very nearly, I guess, a professional sports coach or something else instead, <laughs> Um But yeah, then after that, I went on to do history at university and again, really loved it and found myself particularly compelled by kind of modern and contemporary history, political history. I did anything that was kind of U.S. foreign policy, um, totalitarian leaders, um, modern British politics, anything of that ilk, uh, I was trying to get on those options and those units at university. So, yeah, I think just a really long standing interest in history in general. And then it was my undergraduate dissertation uh, when I really sort of got an interest in research and particularly the kinds of stuff that I suppose ended up underpinning the kinds of things that I do now. So my undergraduate dissertation was um, about the works of George Orwell, actually, and how politicians of different ilks used um, kind of. Orwellian stories and um, the kind of ideas and stories that he had in like Big Brother and I uh, sorry Big Brother in 1984 and on Animal Farm and how those got appropriated by politicians and then used when they were making political arguments and so I think that was the kind of start of me being really interested in how culture can be used to convey political ideas to a kind of general public and how politicians are using popular cultural touchstones. And um, using books and novels and TV and those kind of things, how it's often in those arenas that people's ideas about the economy and about politics and about society are often formed and shaped. Um, so, yeah, I think that's actually where where that kind of started was with this undergraduate dissertation that I did, where I read most of the entire works of George Orwell and absolutely loved it. Um, and it was at that point then that I, I decided I wanted to carry on and do a PhD in all of that business. So. I guess that's a slightly potted history of my own history um, on the route to becoming a historian.
1: Thank you very much. That's super interesting. And especially because um, contemporary history is not something that necessarily uh, appeals, particularly to an undergraduate, in uh, in the sense that um, you are marshaled or guided to reflect in longer time periods. And um, your supervisors tend to be focused, I don't know, in the 12th century or sometimes the 19th century, for example. In in Mexico, people tend to be super focused in, during the colonial times, 19th century, uh, the revolution at the start of the 20th century at most. So having somebody that naturally or for... Long period, or, you know, from very early on, is 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 interested in contemporary history, is is um. remark, it's it's remarkable in, and and it's super interesting and and of course it's a, it's a win for 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 the profession because you've done an an excellent job and, we're going to talk about that in in a moment. So, um, but but your work. In in this book, deals with the 1980s. Um, so how did you move from working with, from, with from Orwell and these political ideas of culture to uh, tackling such a relatively recent time? I mean, now it's uh, it, we would consider it um, appropriate in, in general terms to, to, to do it as part of history. But how, how did you become um, engaged with uh, the, the Thatcher years? and what is happening in financial markets uh, around this time?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it actually does stem quite directly from uh, from the undergraduate dissertation. So the end part of that dissertation was looking at the uses of Orwell in the 1980s by right-wing politicians um, in both Britain and America, actually, in that context, um, to make arguments about state uh, rolling back the state. And um, so there were some sources that I found at the time which were people like Margaret Thatcher making arguments and saying that the left in Britain was going to lead um, was going to lead Britain to an Orwellian society, a big brother society of state surveillance. And so I kind of first encountered some of that um, whilst I was doing that undergraduate dissertation. And then I became much more interested in kind of neoliberalism and the shift towards the right um, and towards free markets in the 1980s. So then my master's dissertation, I focused um, instead on the political marketing of the Conservative Party under Margaret Thatcher um, and a lot of the kind of innovations. And um, I, I mean, I say innovations, it's not like political parties before Margaret Thatcher had never thought to use an advertising agency or had never thought to undertake political marketing campaigns or use focus groups. But certainly there was a kind of shift change in the 1980s and quite a serious engagement with very active political marketing and using kind of the growing field of marketing expertise um, and advertising and so as part of that dissertation and that um, kind of research project I was really interested in how Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party sold the idea of ownership and sold some of the basic tenets of Neoliberalism, um, or at least of Thatcherism, I suppose, if not neoliberalism, and some of the things they were trying to do. And so as a case study for that, I looked at the right to buy um, policy and the way that the Conservative Party promoted um, their policy of allowing council house tenants to buy their own um, council houses. And then also some of the early privatisations or the big major ones. So the privatisation of British Telecom, particularly I used as a case study. And so it was that and the study uh, and looking at all the advertising around the sale of BT that ended up kind of really catching my interest of how you sell the concept of ownership and particularly not home ownership, where there's quite a concrete thing that you're owning, but the concept of being an owner and being an investor as, as, ideas and how you sell that to the public and get them in quite a big way to invest um, and to come on board and to buy these shares in British Telecom, which was wildly oversubscribed. And so that's kind of where the transition came to being more interested in 1980s and Thatcher and Thatcherism. But that was much that was quite a tight political focus for, for my uh, master's dissertation. Um, And I'm quite interested very specifically in the Conservative Party and their ideologies and their ways of selling it. Um, And so then the book kind of came out of that, of some of the sources I encountered while doing that project. And then also just thinking that we can't just put this down to the Conservative Party. This can't just be that a political party come into power have a couple of advertising campaigns and political speeches. And that's the only way that people ever come to think about financial markets. So it kind of grew out from there. And then I was interested in all the other groups and organisations and banks and financial institutions and all the other ways that then people would encounter these ideas about being investors and what that meant to them and why they might want to be an investor and why that would be fun and what the stock market meant to them. So it kind of grew out from... That dissertation into a PhD thesis, and then eventually, um, in a roundabout way, into um, into the book.
1: Thank you. Uh, let's let let I I think this this thing of how people become engaged and, and active in financial markets is is central to the to the book, and I want to come back to to that in a moment or or explore that in greater depth in in a moment. Just just to clarify, um, to our Non UK audience that for council houses these are or or where large numbers of uh, properties uh, for personal use that were owned by municipalities or sometimes by other agencies, which um, because of the problem of uh, housing, particularly after the Second World War, um, government had invested substantially, uh, but and 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 Thatcher had. this noble idea, in a way of making um, residents or owners or allowing them to become owners of of these houses, uh, because there were other issues of maintenance and uh, who had the right to access them and and so on, that then uh, deals with this this double um, objective. And secondly, BT was the um, telecommunications uh, monopoly, and and it's one of the b- big um, moments in 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 the Thatcher government of how well how oversubscribe the selling of this utility is, and and it actually opens up uh, uh, an opportunity, or if not an opportunity, is seen. As a moment where many other countries very quickly follow suit and and put uh, large utilities to um, um, on the market and and create new a, a new wave of millionaires and that that uh, the, the person that always comes to mind is um carlos slim which is also happens to be a mexican but uh, the purchase of the Mexican telecoms um, utility Telmex uh, further launches him to become one of the three top um, wealthiest men in in the world, according to to Forbes. So it is a significant moment not only for the UK but internationally in in that sense. Um, so let's let's just look at the at, at the structure and uh, also explore this. Um, uh, way in which you landed with uh, uh, University of California Press and was were, were able to to, trans, to transform your dissertation into um into a book. So how how was that process?
0: Yeah, so uh, working with um, University of California Press, uh, I have to say, it's been amazing. And one of the reasons why uh, I wanted to publish with them was partly because uh, the book, uh, the series, uh, which is the Berkeley series in British Studies, um, is really well respected. And I suppose, actually, I don't tend to think of myself as an economic or business or finance historian, first and foremost. I tend to think of myself as a social and cultural historian and a historian of modern Britain. And so it seemed like a really good opportunity to speak to other modern British historians and to make the case that economic history isn't just this backdrop to the kind of political upheavals of the 20th century or some of the um, a lot of the social history that's been done um, in that field which has been you know really excellent work but that financialization so this kind of rise of the power and dominance of financial institutions um, at the government level um, at the national economic level but also their dominance and impact on everyday life that this kind of has a story of it of its own that it's not this kind of general backdrop that helps us better understand thatcher but that actually it's it's quite an important fundamental part of the major shifts and the major meta-narratives of the 20th century in britain particularly um and i think it's an important part of other stories that we tell about post-war british society and also not just britain as well i mean that's the other part of this story is placing Britain in a wider context where financialization and the, the power of finances, you know, that's not a story that's just about Britain or even that Britain is the, the best example of. Uh, it's just the field that I work in. So it seemed like a really good opportunity to merge those interests of mine where I am a social and cultural historian. I am a historian of modern Britain, but I do think that we can tell social and cultural stories about economic change. And we can take these quite kind of nameless, faceless, big processes that are really hard to understand and start to bring them down to the the level of everyday life. So um, UCP, really uh, University of California Press, seemed really good home for that. And then also the series editor, who's Professor James Vernon. Um, He's been a really fantastic mentor and he's been an excellent editor. And I was really thankful to be able to work with him. He was so supportive. And um, I think... It's a really good press, especially for uh, for any scholar. But my experience as a young scholar transforming a PhD thesis into a first book and trying to scale that project up and think how it might look as a book project, and the support that I got from, particularly from James, but from the press as a whole for doing that process um, was second to none. So that was part of the reason I wanted to go there as well, was to be able to kind of work with that team Um because I'd heard uh, from other people in similar positions um, how good they were as a press to support first um, first monographs and early career scholars and stuff.
1: Thank you. That's very that's very interesting. And you've touched on the the the, the key concept that permeates the the work, which is that is that of financialization, and and you've already uh, provided us what you you feel is the uh, is the definition. Of financialization, as um, there are competing definitions of financialization, and there is also there are also competing um, explanations as to when and, and where it started. Um, so the, the the book has uh, six chapters uh, after the introduction. Um, first, you touched on this uh, growth of investment culture from 1840 to 1980 as kind of um, setting up the the scene. uh, uh, Well, I'll I'll let you explain what each chapter kind of does and what are the themes. Then um, in chapter two, you you talk about speculation and and small investors. Chapter three is the rise of financial consumerism. Um, in chapter four is the making of the mass market for the financial uh, advice industry and um, then in chapter five five is the yopis or the finance and investment in popular culture and in chapter six you readdress the title of the book are we have we reached yet and investment clubs and investor activism so um, how did this uh, themes come together what what, what what were yeah the interactions and how you wanted to build uh, this story of financialization
0: yeah it's a good question I suppose in some ways some of this was uh, I, I found it really quite a challenge to reconceptualize some bits of the PhD thesis and think about how they might look at a book uh, look as a book sorry and to th- to tell bits of the story that I didn't get a chance to um, when doing the PhD thesis and also start to place what at the time was quite a focused look on just the 1980s in a slightly longer history. Because although I do think that the 1980s is this moment of transition where the pace and scale of financialization and the rise of mass investment culture really amps up, It's not something that is unique to the 1980s, or even something that start. It certainly doesn't start in the 1980s, and that's really what the first chapter does, um, is to set up this much longer history, which other historians do a fantastic job of telling. um, Telling us, Kieran Heinemann has a recent book out, uh, which is about speculation, and again, it kind of that focuses slightly more on the earlier period, although he comes right up to the 1980s and 1990s too. Um, But, yeah, I didn't want to make it seem as though I thought that um, people only discovered investing in the 1980s and that um, mass investment culture was invented in the 1980s. So that first chapter is really about setting the scene and showing the kinds of conditions and forms of or early signs of mass investment culture and um, kind of public engagement with financial institutions and financial instruments um, and financial products. Um, other kinds as well like the credit industry and stuff which I'm less interested in in the book but is is really important and um, so that's what the first chapter was intended to do and then the other chapters are about tracing the different features of this and particularly looking at different historical actors and I suppose that the central argument of the book is that yes well um, kind of it's about almost arguing back against my own uh, master's thesis I guess which was the politicians and the Conservative Party and Margaret Thatcher are really important to the stories that we tell about the 1980s in Britain and the political and economic changes that occurred then, that they were in some ways pushing at an already open door and that this is about explaining one of the arenas and one of the ways that um, that Thatcherism wasn't just a kind of top-down process, but actually involved a lot of actors and institutions and people and organisations outside of the Conservative Party and not as some big kind of uh, cabal or um, some kind of conscious network. Often these pe- uh, often the institutions and groups that I'm looking at wouldn't have shared a, political sp- a natural political space with the Conservative Party in the 1980s, but nonetheless, some of the things that they did did contribute to this kind of growing presence of finance and financial institutions and financial imagery and logic and language in everyday life. So the different chapters of the book are then looking at some of those different actors um, and institutions who played a role in that. So um, the third chapter, for example, looks at um, banks and financial institutions and how they marketed financial products and the ways that that changed and shaped how people engage with them um, and where they might encounter adverts for different types of share products. Um, the fourth chapter looks at the mass market financial advice industry, which some of that is being produced by banks and financial institutions, but also uh, the financial press. Um, also, TV producers are creating like game shows and all sorts of things that are in are intended to help people and to help them understand these different um, financial products and different ways of managing their money. Um, And then the fifth chapter is about kind of the sphere of popular culture and how TV programs and board games and um, fashions and all of those kinds of things also engage with and replicate the the culture of, of the city and transform it into a kind of popular mass culture that... Um, One of the examples I use is Filofaxes. The Filofaxes start as this um, kind of fairly niche business accessory, which is just about keeping your contacts and your, um, I don't know, financial data or business data all in one place and well organised. And it becomes the must-have accessory of the 1980s. And you see film stars with them and you see politicians with them and there are all these um, shops where you can go in and have a tailored experience where you get fitted with your own personal file of facts. So it's a, the book is kind of about spreading out and out and out and looking at the different ways that different groups and people um, contributed to this process of financialization and particularly the strand of it, which is more the financialization of daily life. You mentioned earlier that there are different understandings of what financialization is and how it functions, and I suppose the corner of of that bit of the field or that kind of set of ideas and theories that I'm working with is this kind of financialization of daily life and the way that finance shapes how people think about themselves and their lives and impacts them on a like a really day-to-day basis.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's super interesting. And and indeed, I mean, one of them, uh, as as you were mentioning, is not something that is unique to the uk but one of the characteristics of what some people call the second globalization which kind of starts uh, at the end of the 20th century is this intensi- intensification of financial markets uh in volume and across a number of of sectors and that's in my understanding what we were trying to capture when we talk about financialization and and um then the way that we define it is is something that um, then permeates what what we're we're looking at. But while while I was reading the the book, particularly the first chapters, um, what came to mind is that something that not, does not necessarily make the UK unique, but certainly is is, is something that I am particularly interested is. That you need to have people active in the banking system, what we call uh, bankarization, to be financially included, to be able to then participate in 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 other uh, type of financial markets such as stocks and, and bonds and, and and whatever have you. Um, and and one thing that is that is um, um, uh, that kind of is is implicit is that um, having a current account in the UK and in other countries as well was the remit of the very well off and. But that kind of starts to change in the nineteen sixties and the nineteen seventies. Certainly, it it takes off in the nineteen eighties as well, no? And and I think it's a prerequisite to 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 be able to to do the other because you 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 need to be able to move the money between the different financial markets. So so. Um, was that something that um, you left on the side or were not necessarily interested? Or how how do you feel about the role of, you know, the basic um, bread and butter financial instruments to be able to then build into these more sophisticated markets?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I would absolutely agree. I think um, you're right, it's not something that I particularly explicitly deal with in the book. And I suppose it's because I was trying to tell a slightly different story and about this I guess a particular strand of the massification of retail finance and um, particularly the moment where it moves beyond kind of current accounts and savings accounts and credit cards, which like you say, in the 1960s the you know, I think it's 1966, 1965 maybe where Barclay card um, as Barclay's bank launches the first credit card um, intended for like a mass uh, like a general population or a mass audience kind of thing um and I, those those are really important developments and you also see some of the early signs of the stuff that then i would argue really kicks off in the 1980s which is you start to see the rise of um a much more general purpose financial press money management press personal finance press that's advising people and very intentionally advising a much more kind of general middle class and maybe even upper working class market about here are the kinds of products that you can use to manage that bit of spare cash that you have. Um, So a lot of this is to do with mass affluence after the war and as the kind of quote unquote like regular worker starts to have spare cash at the end of the month on the one hand we see you know, the rise of mass consumer society and various goods companies trying to convince people to buy white goods and all sorts of things with their spare cash. But financial institutions are also in the mix at exactly that same moment thinking, okay, people have a bit of spare cash at the end of the month. Can we start funding this into credit cards, um, into savings accounts, and then eventually also into investing? Like maybe that's the thing that we can start to do. So I would absolutely agree that Another big part of this story, which is perhaps not the one that I'm telling, but is certainly a really important context for this is bankerization or, you know, people starting to use different kinds of financial instruments that then sets the scene for this kind of boom in interest in investing and in direct stock market investing um, and investing in kind of unit trusts and investment trusts and individual um, equities on top of all the other things that people are doing, like taking on mortgages and credit cards and pensions and all the other ways that they're getting tied to financial markets and financial institutions in really interesting ways.
1: Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, and so while we're in this, what, what would be your reflection in terms of the gender differences and the, gender, the different gender studies that are told ar- around this? stories as finance and particularly finance in the 1980s is perceived as very masculine and, and banking being dominated by men, for men and for for decades, um, if, if not a good century before before this. Um, so, you know, wh- wh- what is the role of women and how, how they, they, they play into these stories of of financialization and and stock market investment
0: it's it's a really good question and um i'm sure there are other historians as well who would be really well placed to answer some of this or so i worry that i will miss some bits out but as you say i think one of culturally and certainly in terms of some of the high financial spaces so trading on the stock market floor Um, kind of management positions in banks and things, this is super male dominated. It's still well into the 1980s. Um, And I think it's chapter five. I'm struggling to remember my own book now. Um, There's a chapter uh, that's on yuppies and yuppie culture. And that makes that exact argument that there is a real construction of um, investing at least certain types of investing and kind of quite high risk stock market investing as inherently masculine and a kind of test of masculinity in a lot of the images of the stock market and of yuppies um, in Britain and, and also in America and Wall Street. Uh, you can think of the famous 1987 film Wall Street. This is about a kind of very masculine world um, of like high risk, high reward. And so there's that side of it that remains and And investing generally, whilst there's a narrative in the 1980s that um, investing is slowly being democratised and that more and more people are getting access to the market, fundamentally by the end of the 1980s there is still quite a narrow um, kind of middle, upper class, largely male, largely white elite um, who are both dominating in terms of working in the city and then also if you look at kind of patterns of share ownership, they, they haven't changed a huge amount. But as I say, there is this also important narrative of democratisation which is going on at the same time and different facets of stock markets are becoming more accessible to people even if it's not in a way that fundamentally changes who actually has access to capital. Um, so some of that is in the kind of cultural access, just the um, entertainment and images of the stock market and some of the fashions and accessories and all the things that are kind of markers of financial uh, financial markets um, are becoming more popular and accessible to people. Um, but also, as you say, um, banks and building societies and things do start to see women as basically an untapped market. So it's only with um, uh, 1975, is it? The Sex Discrimination Act that women are entitled, entitled to a bank account in their own name. It's not that they never did beforehand, but before that point. A bank could reasonably, if they wanted, ask for a husband's signature or father's signature like to secure a woman a bank account or a credit card or things like that. And you do start to see more women moving into um, professional um, white collar jobs, including in financial institutions. Um, Lucy Newton has a really good um, article out recently, uh, which is on... um, women working for Barclays and kind of Barclays uniforms and stuff, which I'd really recommend anyone interested in this stuff. Um, And there's another um, academic, Fiona Allen, who has a really interesting article called The Feminization of Finance or something like that. Um, And she talks particularly about the reimagining of the house um, as homes become... Financialized or seen as assets in their own right, where people are buying homes as an asset rather than as a, just as a place to bring up a family, um, that women come more and more under the scrutiny of and come to the attention of politicians and banks and people who are then interested in signing them up to credit agreements and in getting them interested in stock market investments and all of those kind of things. So there is, there is a slow shift, um, but yeah, I wouldn't say it's um either complete or overnight or anything like that and it it works out in quite interesting gendered ways in terms of the kinds of products that are seen as suitable financial products that are seen as suitable for women versus the kind of products that are seen as suitable for men or the kinds of trading that women might be good at versus the kind of trading that men might be good at that still remains really heavily gendered i would say
1: Yes, indeed. And when you were mentioning Wall Street, another title that came to mind was the Bonfire of the Vanities. That was a, a flop in terms of a movie, but it was a hugely, hugely popular um, uh, book read across the trading floors. And and there was another one that the namescapes that actually tells of the story of. Um, I think it was a Smith Barney or Salomon Brothers and how they create the, um, the um, mm-hmm. Mortgage market, the the the, and, and it's a very very, you know, it's just two men fighting each other, and how they are kings of the trading bid and so on, and 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 so forth, and and certainly uh, in, in that sense, um, uh, some of the work of of our colleague uh, Sabine Foss has been really interesting in mapping how uh, in the case of bank accounts uh, women and and she tells the whole story of how it takes almost a decade for women in France uh, sorry almost a century for women in France to gain the right of having a bank account on their own right so it's something that starts in the in the um, Uh, 1905, but it finally uh, sorted until 1965. And and it's happening across Europe. Uh, They they gained that right in in the Netherlands in 1958. Uh, Germany, I think it's 1965. And and the International Year of of Women in 1975 sees a lot of legislation that, that correct this in and in, in some countries like in France for example in the us it was also a quite uh, um, uh, a tortured story because um, it was at the at the uh, state level so by 1965 there was a, a commission from, from from Congress precisely looking at how Different states gave women different rights to to access access financial markets, and then it settled with again with legislation in 1975. And nineteen and, and as I said, 1975 is is not a, a random year. It's it's this move to you know to to celebrate uh, the International Year of of Women, and, and a number of countries bring. Um, this legislation and um, masse. but so 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 coming 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 back to to, to the book, uh, tell us a little bit about the archives that you use, and especially as uh, it's a it's a project that was maturing or it was developing through. Um, you know, as, as, as you were going through different stages of, of your education, I, I, I guess that, you know, there's a lot of uh, trial and error and finding new, new sources and, and thinking of the project in, in different ways, as you have explained. So, so how does that reflect in terms of the archives and the material that you use to, to be able to build your story?
0: Yeah, so um, as you say, in some ways, uh, the types of archives that I was using changed quite a lot over, over the course of, I guess, essentially 10 years that I ended up working on bits of things that ended up partly in the book, sometimes not in the book, different bits of um, master's dissertations and PhDs and all of those kind of things. So a lot of the earlier material was very much, um, as I said earlier, politically focused. So uh, I did use the Conservative Party archives quite a lot. um, And also the Thatcher papers at the Churchill Archive Centre. And so I used a lot of political materials and that really was the stuff that I used to develop my understanding of the the political shifts that were going on in this period um, and the different ways that the conservative party conceptualized some of this stuff and particularly those early um uh, the privatizations and the the sale of uh, british telecom and the sale of british gas um so there was some of that stuff i also went to those archives british telecom archives and british gas archives um both were really great places to work the british Gas uh, british gas archives particularly it was years ago now that i used it but um it was run by a group of volunteers who invited me out for lunch and showed me the back rooms of the archive as well and gave me a bit of a tour. So um, that was a really fun place to work in the end. Um, but beyond that, uh, I used a, a fair amount of institutional archives, so um, Barclays Archive and Lloyds Bank. And also, um, I haven't spoken about it yet, but in the book I do look at different kind of advocacy groups that emerge to... Um, promote or support what different kinds of share ownership and the widening of share ownership in different ways and they often have different ideas about what that looks like but um, so one group is the wider share ownership council um, and they have a whole institutional archive um, that's at Lund School of Economics or um, well, specifically it's the papers of one of the um, council members and founders this guy called George Copeman. Um, and it's his personal papers um, and at the time that I used them actually they were still on catalogues it was something like 65 boxes worth of stuff some of which were the minutes um, of this council the wider share ownership council and all the different um, initiatives that they tried to do and they did a lot on building like education programs financial literacy programs um, they worked a lot with employee share schemes which is something that I don't really talk about much in the book and it's probably one of the things Um, that I should have spoken about, but um, you only have so much room, I guess. Um, But in amongst papers also about his various holidays to Australia and all sorts of other things that he was up to. Um, And then beyond that, I I used quite a lot of published materials, so because I'm interested in how finance appears in popular culture, um, some of my favourite bits and pieces were, um, like, television programmes that I, I say I nursed. They were very, very present and the archivists definitely knew that they were there, but that once I came across them, were uh, really fascinating. There was this um, game show on Channel 4, um, on UK Channel 4, called the Stocks and Shares um, show, where they got uh, a bunch of kind of, quote unquote, ordinary people to come on and compete as they invested a fictional amount of money in the stock market and at the end, um saw who in theory would have made the most money or lost the most money and um various kind of tv programs and films um but particularly i have a uh, i'm sat in my office at the moment and i can see them from here i have a whole collection of financial board games and investment board games um which absolutely proliferated in the 1980s um with names like what have we got strike it rich shocks and scares the stock exchange game Whole Economy, um, Calamity, Insider Trading, Speculate. um, Yeah, all these fantastic board games, um, which I particularly enjoyed working through and reading the rules and trying to figure out what it was that they were trying to do and how they were teaching people about what the stock market was and how they were kind of selling it as a game, but also kind of using the games as an attempt to kind of train people in financial thinking and stuff. So... Yeah, quite an eclectic mix of stuff in the end that I used um, across across the years as I was doing this project.
1: Right, thank you very much uh, for that, Amy. And you've you've already touched on my my next question, which was you know what sort of nuggets or interesting things were left out, and you've mentioned you know, share ownership and and uh, actually that in 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 a way some parts of the project were trying to bring in stuff that had been left out in 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 other. So as uh, as um, uh, one of the final questions. Uh, you, you dedicate your, your book to your mom and dad and you say that because they the 80s made you. So what would be the um, lesson, what would be the message, what would be the story that somebody that grew in the 80s or is a result of the 1980s would, would take from, from this book?
0: That's a really good question. Uh, funnily enough, one of my friend's dad's... Um, read the book recently um and he was um old enough to have lived through the 1980s and uh, he had some really interesting reflections um about in some ways when he was reading reading the book it kind of sparked off some things for him where he had kind of forgotten that that was stuff that happened that you know at this point he didn't really remember much more that like if you asked him about the 1980s and stock markets he probably would have told you about big bang he probably would have told you a bit about privatisation. Um, there's the the character um, from the government adverts for the selling of British gas was this guy called Sid. He's a character in the adverts um, that became a kind of shorthand that people used at the time and since to talk about ordinary people who bought government privatisation shares. So they often call them Sid's. So he remembered that kind of stuff. Um, but he said that in reading it it had occurred to him that actually there was much more of this about and it was only really on stopping to reflect about it just quite how prevalent images of the stock market became um, and the kind of language of the stock market became and he said it particularly it felt more familiar now um, to how things are today Um, and I suppose really that's the underlying story here and the reason why I find contemporary history particularly compelling is, um, and it's a real cliche, but I like doing histories that help us to understand the world that we live in today. Um, and not all, but some of some of the kind of work that I read early on in this process uh, when I was learning about neoliberalism um, was the work of scholars who were kind of inspired by Foucault and we're taking quite Foucaultian approaches to this stuff and I think it's Graham Birchall, although I'm not entirely sure has this line um when he's talking about neoliberalism and the Foucault stuff where he talks about the recent inventedness of our present um, and that doing contemporary history and um looking at the recent past helps us to kind of make our present seem strange to us and say, wait a minute, this thing that feels like it's been here and just the way that things are, um, that's been here for, must've been here for for ages, actually perhaps only came into being 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And I suppose that really, so although part of the book is saying that a lot of this has a much longer history and, you know, kind of over a hundred years, some of this um, kind of massification of uh, retail finance and, financialization and the rise of mass investment culture is a very long process, actually it's in a very short, sharp period in the 1980s that this really heads into new territory. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's trying to understand where the world that we live in and how inevitable it feels that fin- like financial markets dominate and how inevitable it feels that we understand the strength of our economy based on whether the stock market's going up and down. That, that hasn't always been the case and trying to understand when and how that stuff, like where that came from. Um, I don't know that I'm explaining myself very well, but yes, yeah, so something about that. I like doing histories of the present and really trying to figure out where the kind of cultural world that we exist in today, um, how that came into being and perhaps how it might change as well moving forward.
1: Thank you, that's super interesting. Um, um, thank you very much, um, Amy. So finally, what are you working on now, and what sort of stories of the present, as you say, are you dealing in in a way? Um, I don't know. You feel this way, but uh, having a ten, you know, very long project uh, is good, but also it's liberating to look at it and say, well, okay, it's done. Now we're moving into something else. You kind of like, like. Um, Break those shackles, or, or um, you know, there are w- different ways in which you can, we can, you can describe this. But it's good to say, well, I'm moving into something else. So, what, what is your something else that you're tackling on these days?
0: It's a really good question. It feels like one well, every time someone asks me, particularly someone at work or um, my colleagues ask me, I give a different answer because I think I'm slightly flitting between things at the moment, as you say, having just come out of this project, I'm still finding my feet with what might be next. Um, continuing on in the vein of being inspired by my parents lives and trying to figure out I feel like a lot of my history is basically me trying to figure out my parents and why they are the way they are um and the world that they grew up in and therefore the world that I grew up in in the end um but uh I am considering uh another project which will be on business franchises and business franchisees um, and trying to understand uh, the context here being that my dad was a business franchisee of sorts. Um, he ran a spa shop uh, when I was younger. Um, and yeah, I've just become really interested in um, business franchising as a model. And again, I suppose it comes back to some quite core cool questions I'm interested in about the, um, the ways and means that people buy into visions of ownership and what it means to be an owner, whether that's a homeowner or a business owner or a share owner, and why that has become quite so important in society. Um, and this particularly, I suppose, another aspect of the culture of the 1980s is the rise of like enterprise culture um, and this real kind of cultural belief in the power of the entrepreneur. Other um, historians have done really interesting stuff on um, like celebrity CEOs the people like Alan Sugar or Donald Trump and the power, kind of cultural power that they hold in society um, and so yeah, I'm interested in at a, again, a more everyday level how and why people might want to own businesses and what role business franchising played in that I also read, um, oh, the author's name that was completely escaped me Marcia Chapman, Crossman, I don't know um, a fantastic book on McDonald's franchises in um, in the US um, and its connections to civil rights movement. Um, so I've just been reading that, and I really recommend it. I thought it was uh, it's a fantastic book and really interesting. And, yeah, so maybe something to do with, like, the body shop and women enfranchising and kind of crossing some of those boundaries stuff we are talking about earlier, about kind of the gendered patterns of financialization and the way that, that um, gender shaped the rise of neoliberalism through... Women franchisees, something in the in the area that was about 101 different answers in one. So it gives you an idea of how uncertain I am, I guess, of exactly what the next project might look like specifically.
1: Thank you very much for that, Amy. Well, certainly, Marcia, Marcia Chatelain's uh, franchise uh, was a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning our uh, book, and I'm sure yours will be as well when, when <laughs> it's don't out. not
0: know about that. <laughs>
1: and so thank you very much for, for being with us uh, today at New Books, New, New Books Network, Amy. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for um, choosing to spend your time with us. Uh, do remember, if you haven't done it, to subscribe. If you are a subscriber, thank you. Uh, do leave us a, a comment in the, in the notes or rank us that helps us very much to continue with this project. And uh, I'll leave the full references to the articles and books that uh, we have uh, mentioned uh, during the podcast in the description if you want to follow up on that. And until next time, uh, Amy Edwards. thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.